0: I want to introduce Daryl to you tonight. Daryl Harrison serves as the director of digital platforms at Grace To You, the media ministry of Dr. John MacArthur. In his role at Grace To You, Daryl is responsible for overseeing the ministry's digital and social media strategy. Daryl has a blog called Just Thinking For Myself, which as of October 2022 has more than 75,000 subscribers. He's also the co-host of the Just Thinking podcast, one of the most popular Christian podcasts in the world, with, get this, more than 5.3 million episodes downloaded since it debuted in December 2017. Daryl is a fellow of the Black Theology and Leadership Institute at Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey, and a graduate of the Theology and Ministry Certificate Program at PTS. He is currently in the final phase of becoming a certified biblical counselor with the association of certified biblical counselors acbc i think we can all say your you guys are counseling us episode after episode and we're grateful for that daryl and his wife melissa are originally from atlanta georgia but currently reside in santa clarita california they have three adult children colin naomi and yasmin each of whom reside in their native state of Georgia. Daryl is a sought-after cultural apologist, particularly on the matters of biblical anthropology, such as critical race theory, black liberation theology, and a biblical view of race and ethnicity. Would you welcome Daryl?
1: I think uh, Eric mentioned earlier that, yeah, I've been up since like 2 a.m. California time. So before i got up here i had to look at my watch okay so how do i greet them is it afternoon or evening Uh, because i've I've totally lost track of time but i really appreciate you guys coming out um never been to lubbock first time in the lubbock area but i'm somewhat familiar with this area because um, as eric mentioned as he introduced me my wife and i are originally from atlanta so we're in sec territory when it comes to, to to football you know in this at least in the Southeast, I don't know how it is here in Texas. In the Southeast, football is the only sport that, that matters. Uh, but I'm very, I, I watched a lot of Texas Tech football, uh, especially during the Mahomes era, era, and so glad to see him doing uh, so well. Uh, but it's a joy, and I, I know I speak on behalf of Virgil as well, for us to be here in Lubbock, Texas. Um, beautiful flyover country, just absolutely beautiful from the air. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous here, just gorgeous. And see, you have to understand, where I am now in Southern California, everything's brown. Literally, everything's brown. There's no green or anything like that. You can't even water your... Matter of fact, I was going to say you can't water your lawn, but in, in L.A., you can't have a lawn because you can't water it. So you guys are so... You guys knew this already. You're blessed to live in Texas. Let me just say that as someone who's in California, the People's Republic of California, as they, as, as they call it. But uh, wonderful... Uh, to see you all here, I bring you greetings on behalf of John MacArthur and the staff and volunteers at Grace to You, the, uh, the elders and the staff at Grace Community Church. Um, whenever I travel, even when I'm not at an official Grace to You event, I understand that I'm always wearing the Grace to You hat. So here we are tonight, this weekend, rather. Virgil and I are representing Just Thinking Ministries, which is our own ministry. But as, as we travel, Virgil's always wearing the uh, hat as uh, Director of Operations for G3 Ministries. I'm also always wearing the hat for uh, Director of Digital Platforms for Grace to You. Uh, so thank you all for supporting Grace to You and for praying for uh, Grace to You and Grace Community Church, especially over the past couple of years with the whole uh, COVID situation and uh, the, the, the legal uh, hoops that we've had to jump through out there. So with that, let me open with a question. How many of you are familiar with the term critical race theory? How many, how many of you have heard that term? How many of you think you know what that is? Much fewer hands than the, few, than, the first, than the first question. Well, we're here this weekend to talk with you about the sufficiency of Scripture. And whether you realize it or not, Scripture does speak to critical race theory. It does speak to critical race theory. Now, my message to you today is in two parts, okay? So this is gonna be part one we am gonna have a little bit of a break, and then I'm gonna go into part two. But what you have to understand fundamentally about critical race theory, what you have to in, uh, initially realize about critical race theory is that critical race theory is not some sort of big bang proposition. You've all heard of the term the big bang before. It's the evolutionary idea that everything that is in existence just appeared ex nihilo, just out of nothing, just poof and there it all is. Well, we know that's ridiculous. Well, critical race theory is is the same thing. Critical race theory is not some sort of big bang proposition that just appeared, poof, out of nowhere over the last year or two. Critical race theory goes way back. It has a definitive origin and that origin is born from a philosophy that was originally advanced by two 19th century German philosophers, the names of which are Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Now, you may be more familiar with the first name than the latter. You're probably more familiar with Karl Marx, at least the name. Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx were like this. Matter of fact, it was Engels who financed Marx. Marx was a lazy bum. There's no other way to put it. Do your own research on him, and you will find that out. Matter of fact, to give you an idea of the kind of person that Karl Marx was, please give attention to this passage from the book titled Heaven on Earth, Subtitled, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism by Dr. Joshua Moravchik. Dr. Moravchik is head of an organization called the Institute of World Politics. And in his book titled, Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism, he writes this about Karl Marx, quoting, when Karl Marx was at university, his father and then his remaining brother died, leaving his mother with four daughters three of them grown, but all unmarried. Carl, then 24, had received his doctorate a year before and launched his career in radical journalism. He never thought to offer the five women any help, but rather he expected his mother to continue to support him. She was hurt and eventually cut him off almost entirely, an offense for which he never forgave her. She was hurt and eventually cut him off almost entirely. She did not allow him to claim some of his inheritance in advance and he waited impatiently for the rest of it. When Friedrich Engels wrote to Marx reporting the death of his mistress, Mary Burns, this is the death of Engels' mistress, Mary Burns, Marx consoled Engels with the wish that it had been, quote, my own mother who is now full of physical infirmities and has already lived her life instead of Mary." So Marx was the kind of guy who, when his partner Friedrich Engels' mistress died, he wished that that was his own mother who had died. This is important for you to know, fundamentally, that critical race theory has its origin in organic Orthodox Marxism. There's an ideological umbilical cord, if you will, that inexorably connects critical race theory with Marxism. That ideological... Now, now let me pause right here and say, well, Darrell, why are you you starting off with trying to help us understand the connection between critical race race theory and Marxism? I'm doing this because the first thing a critical race theorist is going to do is going to deny that CRT is connected to Marxism. That's the first thing they're going to deny. That's the first... Uh, effort of apologetics that you're going to get, they're going to deny that critical race theory is connected with Marxism. Now that idea, just did, again, it didn't just come out of thin air. People allege that CRT is connected to Marxism because it is. It is. That's why I refer to it in, in, in the metaphor of an umbilical cord. It's, 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 it's connected that tightly. That ideological umbilical cord is a mutual disdain of and contempt for capitalism. So CRT and Marxism have that in common. They have an innate disdain and hatred of capitalism. Both of them, both of those ideologies. Critical race theory views capitalism as the fundamental cause of racism in America. That's because in critical race theory, capitalism is what breeds white supremacy. And it is white supremacy that critical race theorists or crits, you may ref- hear me refer to them as crits. They call themselves crits for short. It's white supremacy that critical race theorists are often, re- often say that they desire to dismantle in America. So the, the, the critical race theorists will say, well, we're, we're, we're all about dismantling white supremacy in America. But what they mean by that, and again, this is another connecting point to Marxism, what they mean by that is that they want to totally destroy the capitalistic system upon which America operates economically. They want to destroy that. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But like Marxism, critical race theory is fundamentally a philosophy of class struggle. If you don't remember a word I say this weekend, do not forget that critical race theory is fundamentally a philosophy that is built on class struggle, just like Marxism is. Marxism fundamentally divides people into classes and then pits those classes against one another. We're gonna talk more about that. One of the things I was most excited about being here with you tonight is you're really sort of getting a, a live version of what Virgil and I do on our Just Thinking podcast. So for those of you who have listened to us, you know that what we do, it takes us weeks to prepare for an episode of our podcast. One of the reasons is, is because we spent so much time researching and studying and collecting first original source quotations from the, the, the mouths of folks on the other side. We read, I, I like to put it this way. If any of, you have, any of you have seen the Godfather trilogy of movies, I think it's in Godfather part two where young Michael Corleone says to one of his hired hands, he says, you know, my father, always taught me to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, that's what Virgil and I do. We have a Godfather sort of um, uh, uh, way of going about apologetics. And what I say about that, we read our enemies. You have to read your enemies. You have to know what your enemies think. So you read them. You You read what critical race theorists have written so that you can intelligently argue from their own words. And here's an example, Dr. Epifiano San Juan, Jr. He goes by E. San Juan if you're going to research him. Dr. Epifiano San Juan, Jr. is Emeritus Professor of English and Ethnic Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Connecticut. You can find his bio, by the way, on the website of the International Marxist Humanist. In a white paper Dr. San Juan wrote, titled From Race to Class Struggle, subtitled Reproblematizing Critical Race Theory. This is a 2005 white paper that's published in the Michigan Journal of Race and Law. Again, the title is From Race to Class Struggle, Reproblematizing Critical Race Theory. Dr. Epicyon San Juan Jr. writes this, and I'm quoting, A first step in renewing critical race theory is simple to state, but difficult to execute. We must begin with the concept of class. We must begin with the concept of class as an antagonistic relation, an antagonistic relation between labor and capital, and then proceed to analyze how the determinant of race is played out historically in the class conflicted structure of capitalism and its political and ideological processes of class rule, unquote. So you heard the word class there multiple times. Dr. Epifiano San Juan Jr. is a Marxist critical race theorist. You don't get your bio on the website of the international Marxist humanist without being a Marxist humanist. Now there's much to dissect in that quote from Dr. San Juan, but what I want you to understand most fundamentally is that when Dr. San Juan says that critical race theory can be used to analyze how the determinant of race is played out historically in the class conflicted structures of capitalism, he doesn't mean analyze in the sense of engaging in an objective, unbiased, impartial critique of society against an objective standard or benchmark of truth and justice. See, when you and, I, when you and I hear the word analyze, we normally don't bring a bias into it. You normally don't do that. Normally when we hear the word analyze, you're saying, okay, I'm gonna look at this from a distance and, and let the reality be what it is. So you've heard critical race theory defined as what? An analytical tool. Mm -mm. No, it's not that. It's not that at all. So when you hear a critical race theorist or anyone refer to critical race theory as an analytical tool or as Dr. San Juan put it, as a way to analyze how the determinant of race is played out, they don't mean to objectively critique without bias. They don't mean that. What he and other crits actually mean by analyze is criticize. It's important that you understand that context. When he says analyze, he means criticize. This is why you said, and I really don't know. I don't know the landscape of Lubbock. Like I said, I've never been here. It's my first time stepping foot in the city. So I don't know to what extent in your communities, in your schools, even in your churches, that you're being confronted with this worldview called critical race theory, and it is a worldview. It's not just an ideology, it's a worldview. So I don't know to what degree you're having to deal with that, but to the degree that you're not having to deal with it, just wait, you will, you will. Because critical race theory, this is, a, this is why it's important that you understand critical race theory as a worldview, and not just a philosophy or an ideology. Critical race theory is coming after everything everything. Now, I don't mean to politicize this event at all, and I don't mean to offend anyone. But again, if you look objectively at the current administration in Washington, D.C., they are governing, all of their domestic decisions are being based on the tenets of critical race theory. All of them. The Department of Justice, Department of Defense, uh, the uh, uh, um, um, uh, cabinet appointments or cabinet nominations, things like that, the uh, The nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, that's a CRT nomination. Yeah, I said that. That's a CRT nomination. They were trying to check a box. They were trying to check a box. You can quote me on that. Ketanji Brown Jackson was a critical race theory appointment to the Supreme Court. Biden said that while he was running for president. He said, I'm going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. He said that. I didn't say that. That's just one example how critical race theory is permeating the culture. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So what you need to understand is when somebody like a Dr. San Juan says critical race theory is used to analyze. Mm -mm. It means criticize. This is why if you pay attention at all to what's going on in the culture right now, critical race theorists, all they do is criticize. Everything, everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. It, 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 again, I need to reiterate this. In, 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 in critical race theory, criticize does not mean to objectively analyze, but to subjectively criticize. Nothing is right with America. And you notice the, in, the, in, the, in the mind of the critical race theorists, America is the only country with problems. It's only America that needs to be blown up and rebuilt. But see, that's precisely why you must not overlook the fact that the aforementioned white paper by Dr. Epi Fiano San Juan is subtitled Reproblematizing Critical Race Theory. Reproblematizing critical race theory. That word reproblematize is crucial for you to note because critical race theory is inherently designed. By design, critical race theory. Literally is designed to criticize every aspect of Western Judeo Christian culture, whether it be social, cultural, political, or ecclesiastical, with regard to the church. It criticizes it through the lens of cultural Marxism so as to invent new problems and revitalize old ones. That's what reproblematizing is. What cr- critical race theory reaches back into history in an effort to resurrect. So social cultural issues as slavery that's the one they won't let go of that's the issue that they will not let go of slavery redlining voter discrimination civil rights discrimination and the like they reach back into history and they try to bring those issues back into the 21st century as if those issues haven't been resolved that's what I mean by reproblematizing to reach back resurrect give it new life give it CPR and then reproblematize them for today I'm not going to boast over anything about Virgil and me, but we're historians, okay? We know black history like the back of our hand, which happens to be black. (laughs) We know our history. We like to say we're historians because we're theologians. We study biblical anthropology. We know that mankind is sinful. Been that way since Genesis 3, not just since 1960. Been that way since Genesis 3. But see, you got guys like Dr. Epiphiano San Juan who will say, and here in Texas, you got a guy like Beto O'Rourke, who will say, well, black people aren't able to vote, black people don't have this, voter suppression, black people suppress this, they're victims of this, blah, blah, blah. No, no. All those issues were settled in law decades ago. Decades ago. I'm from Atlanta. Atlanta is 76% black. Yet you have a woman in Stacey Abrams who's running for governor right now on a voter suppression issue. Now, I can't wrap my mind around that. You've you got a predominantly black city that's had a black mayor now for more than 60 years. And you're talking voter suppression. It's a lie. Any. Any black citizen of the United States of America who is registered to vote can vote. But they want to reach back in history and re problematize that. So, what they'll do on social media is they'll get a photo from 1955 Birmingham, Alabama, where you got some German shepherds trying to chew the hand off of a black person who's trying to eat at a restaurant down in Birmingham, uh, uh, Alabama, as if that's the same thing that's happening today. So you've got to be keen about those kind of things. That's what you're seeing. They're reproblematizing it and trying to convince you that black people in America, oh, we're still walking around. Oh, woe is me, woe is me. This is what Epi Fiona San Juana Jr. is doing. This is what Beto O'Rourke is doing. This is what Stacey Abrams is doing. That's what that word reproblematized means. They reach back in history and bring settled law into the 21st century as if those issues haven't been settled. Redline is against the law now. Voter discrimination is against the law. Housing discrimination is against the law. Education discrimination is against the law. Slavery is against the law. And again, I don't mean to politicize this event tonight. But the reason the Emancipation Proclamation didn't work like it was designed to do it because Democrats didn't want to do it. They didn't obey the law. They refused. They refused to abide by the Emancipation Proclamation. That's why it took another 80 years. After the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in 1863. It took another 80 years. Anyone ever heard the word peonage? The peonage system, after after the Civil War ended, during the Reconstruction era now. During the Reconstruction era, White supremacist Democrats were so hard hearted against the fact that blacks were now free. They instituted what's called a peonage system in the South. Peonage was really by where, where, where they just created laws just out of the blue, to where even standing on a street corner waiting for a traffic light to change, you could be arrested for that. You could be hired out as indentured servitude. It's called slavery by another name. Douglas Blackman has a book that you may be interested in reading. It's called Slavery by Another Name. I encourage you to read that. There's another book called Lay This Body Down uh, that, that talks about how white supremacist Democrats in the South essentially practiced slavery but by another name for another 80 years. But this is what crits tried to do they'll reach back in history and re-problematize these issues. Critical race theory does not see or define race as a fixed, immutable, and static aspect of one's personhood that is grounded in biology, or science for that matter, or theology, such as we find in Acts chapter 17, 26. If you don't have this verse highlighted or underlined, I'm going to give you a one verse apologetic against the idea of race. One verse is Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Acts 17, verse 26. In the New American Standard Translation, that verse reads, And he that is God made from one man, that one man is Adam, every nation on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of that habitation. Now, you may be asking, yourself, well, Darrell, why is this verse, seems pretty innocuous to me, why is this verse a one verse apologetic against the idea of race? Well, a little exegesis here for a second. The word nation in that verse is not speaking about sovereign geographical boundaries of countries. The Greek word for that word nation is the word ethnos, from where we get our English word, ethnicity. So the proper word is ethnicity, ethnic, not race. There's only one human race, one human type, one human species. There are no, there are no races. Hang around for Sunday school, Sunday morning, and you'll hear more about that. But that's a one-verse apologetic against the idea of race. Let me ask you guys a question. Pop quiz time. How many of you have ever been to a restaurant that specialized in racial cuisine? Right. But you probably have been a restaurant that specialized in what? Ethnic cuisine. You've never purchased or read a cookbook that was full of racial recipes, have you? That's because race and racial are the wrong terms. Take the Bible out of it and secular secularism even uses the term correctly. It's ethnic cuisine. It's ethnic recipes. It's not racial because race is nothing. So as Christians, and as an apologist and as a theologian, you need to understand this. You need to be able to, what I call, exegete the culture. You need to be able to exegete the culture. You need to be able And what I mean by that is that you need to be able to take the culture's terms and vernacular and exegete those terms in the, in the context of what Scripture says. There's no such thing as race in Scripture. Now, I want you to consider that in light of what the late Dr. Robert Wald Sussman says in his book titled The Myth of Race, get the subtitle. The Myth of Race, The Troubling Persistence of an Unscientific Idea. I love that subtitle. The Troubling Persistence of an Unscientific Idea. In that book, Dr. Robert Wald Sussman writes this, quoting, What many people do not realize is that this racial structure is not based on reality anthropologists have shown for many years now that there is no biological reality to human race there are no major complex behaviors that directly correlate with what might be considered human racial characteristics there is no inherent relationship between intelligence law abidingness or economic practices and race just as there is no relationship between nose size height blood group, or skin color, and any set of complex human behaviors. However, over the past 500 years, we have been taught by the informal, mutually reinforcing consortium of intellectuals, politicians, statesmen, business and economic leaders, and their books, that human racial biology is real, and that certain races are biologically better than others the biologically deterministic racist worldview has been tested and disproven, disproven consistently, and yet its proponents have remained resistant to all empirical scientific evidence for more than 500 years, especially the past 100 years. See, this matters to you because again, As a Christian, you need to be able to exegete the culture and identify the vernacular that they're using against you as a weapon. There is no such thing as race. Stop using that word. In his book title, Everyone is African, subtitled, How Science Explodes the Myth of Race. Dr. Daniel J. Fairbanks, professor of biology and university research officer at Utah Valley University writes this, quote, few people are aware of how much is known about the genetic basis of race or more accurately, the lack thereof. When viewed on a global scale, there are no discrete genetic boundaries separating so-called races. Rather, The world's human diversity consists of innumerable genetic variations spread throughout the human population in a complex set of multiple overlapping arrays Legally defined categories for race differ from one country to another and they change over time depending largely on the social and political realities of a particular society or nation The notion of discrete racial categories arose mostly as an artifact of centuries-long immigration history coupled with overriding worldviews that white superiority was inherent, a purported genetic destiny that has no basis in modern science. So again, take the Bible out of it. And even secular science disproves the idea of race. What Dr. Fairbanks is saying here is that you need to get this. Race is a social construct, it is not a scientific construct. It's a social construct, it's not scientific. That's important to know because viewing race as a subjective and changeable social construct whose meaning shifts with every turn of the political and cultural winds, as opposed to viewing it as a biological or scientific reality, that doesn't achieve for critical race theorists the eschatological utopia they desire. That utopia is one in which cultural Marxism replaces capitalism, and wherein the current hierarchical power structure is inverted, so that intersectional minorities like blacks, LGBTQA2S++++ becomes the new oppressor class and consequently white supremacist capitalists like all of you out here becomes the new oppressed class let me expand on that for a second so when I say to you that critical race theorists viewing race as a social construct that allows them to change the definition. So anything can be racist now. And not just anything, everything. Everything's racist now. Do you not see that happening? Everything is racist. Everything is racist. It's, it's, it's just so is so twisted, because now in critical race theory, I was being a little bit sarcastic a second ago, but only a little bit because critical race theory does see theory does see every single one of you who is white as a white supremacist capitalist and you're the enemy. You're the enemy. You're the enemy. So in critical race theory, if you're if you're not black, you're white. So even if you're Asian here right now, you're white. You can be Middle Eastern. In critical race theory, you're white. Whatever your ethnicity is. If you're not black, you're white. And in critical race theory, white people are the enemy. So when you hear me say white people, if you're not black, that includes you. That includes you. That eschatological eschatological vision that I described where Critical race theorists want to invert the current, what they, what they see as the current hegemonic power structure or hierarchy where they see white supremacists, capitalists, like all of you at the top. They want to flip that to where you're on the bottom and they're on the top. So critical race theorists, they don't want justice. They don't want fairness. They don't want equity, mm-mm, mm-mm. They want to tear this system down and rebuild it with themselves at the top. That's why, precisely why I argue that critical race theory is not merely an ideolo- ideology or philosophy. It's an all encompassing worldview. And I promise you, if you haven't encountered critical race theory, you're going to encounter it. You're going to encounter it. Let me give you a couple examples. If where you work, if you ever hear the word Diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's critical race theory. DEI, that's critical race theory. If where you work, if you hear that, oh my gosh, I got a survey in my email, in my inbox, what is this? What they're going to do, they're going to go hire a DEI consultant. Then you're going to have to attend a meeting with this consultant. And this consultant is going to have more power than your boss. Because you're going to have to fill out this survey or you're going to lose your job. Social and emotional learning, who's ever heard of that term? SEL, that's critical race theory. So you have to exegete the culture, you have to exegete the terms. See, what you have to understand is when critical race theory invades your workplace, when critical race theory invades your child's school, when critical race theory invades your church, They're not going to call it critical race theory, they're going to call something else. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Are you kidding me? The D should stand for discrimination. Because when you study the landscape of all these corporations in America that have DEI executives, nine out of 10 of them are black females. Now, where's the diversity in that? There's no diversity. DEI is legally codified racial discrimination. More accurately, legally codified ethnic discrimination. But I say racial because that's how the culture defines race by this. Depending on how much of this or how little of this you have. I am going to talk more about that on Sunday. You're either black or white. So beware of DEI, beware of SEL, beware of anything that may remotely present itself as placing people into classes and groups, beware of that. So again, CRT is not merely an ideology or a philosophy, it's an all-encompassing worldview, and I mean that literally, it's coming after everything. It's coming after, it's coming after you personally. I say that in light of what Dr. Epifiano San Juan Jr., who I quoted earlier, said in that same white paper, Reproblematizing Critical Race Theory, he says this quote, we need to reinstate, I'm quoting, we need to reinstate the Marxist category of class derived from the social division of labor that generates antagonistic class relations. See, let me pause in the quote, I'm not done with the quote, but what you have to understand here, They want antagonistic class relations. They don't want to bring anybody together. They don't want unity, they want antagonism. They want fights, they want war. They want war between ethnic groups, socioeconomic classes, they want war. This is what they want. This is not the first time Dr. Epifiano San Juan Jr. has used that term, antagonistic class relations. This is what they want. That's the goal of critical race theory. Like I said earlier, is to divide you into classes, divide you into groups, and then boom, pick those groups together against one another. Continuing the quote from Dr. San Juan, critical race theory can be renewed or reproblematized by adopting class struggle as the means of resolving racial injustice through radical structural transformation. Unquote. Now that phrase, radical structural transformation, that's just called for Marxism. That's a three, a $3 fancy word for Marxism. So what he's arguing here is that you resolve racial injustice by more racial injustice. The tenet of adopting class struggle is precisely why statistics particularly certain socio-ethnic economic data are such valuable weapons for critical race theorists. Critical race theorists subjectively use statistics as a means to form and promote the misleading narrative that any socio-economic differences that may exist, particularly among blacks and whites in America, are actually disparities, and that those disparities are solely the result of inequities brought about in society by an oppressive capitalistic system that is grounded in white supremacy. Hence, the incessant accusations by critical race theorists that America is systemically racist. What do I mean by what I just read? What critical race theorists will do, especially as it relates to pitting uh, blacks and whites against one another, is they'll throw a bunch of statistics out there. Well, we got more black people uh, living in poverty than white people. We got more white people own their home than black people own their home. As if that's a disparity. Again, you must exegete the culture. There is a distinction that you need to be able to make between what is a difference and what is a disparity. We're all, I I don't know, if I would put this on an Excel spreadsheet, I don't know what age ranges we would have here, the different age ranges that would be represented here. But would, would those differences in ages be a disparity? No, there would just be a difference. We got different ages represented here. We got people of different heights. It's not a disparity. A disparity by definition, understand this, a disparity by definition presupposes a universal point of equality or equity, where everybody starts at the same place and that at some point that equilibrium gets skewed, then you have a disparity. But what the critical race theorists will do is they'll, they'll take every difference that exists between blacks and whites, and they'll call that a disparity. Then they'll call the government uh, Calvary in and says, well, we need to do something about this. We need to give black people this. We've got to give black people that we've got to give black people this to make it equitable. So you need to understand that there's a diff- distinction to be made between things that are different, uh, differences and disparities. They're not the same thing. Dr. Thomas Sowell, Clarifies that in his book titled "Discriminations and Disparities where he says this, he says the emphasis on complex statistical analysis in economics and other fields, however valuable or even vital such statistical analysis may be in many cases can lead to overlooking simple but fundamental questions as to whether the numbers on which these complex analyses are based are in fact measuring what they seem to be measuring or claim to be measuring. What can be disconcerting, if not painful, are the simple and obvious fallacies that can pass muster in intellectual circles when these fallacies seem to advance the prevailing vision of what is called social justice, unquote. That's why they throw these statistics out there with no context, because they're trying to advance a narrative. They're trying to advance a social justice narrative. Now, As I close out part one of this message on the interconnectedness of critical race theory and Marxism, I want you to understand that contrary to what may appear to be the reality as you survey the critical race theory landscape, not everyone views socialism in such an affirming way as does Dr. Epifiano San Juan Jr. For example, Dr. Chui Mbetwa, that last name is M-B-E-T-W-A, Chui Mbetwa. Dr. Mbetwa wrote a book titled Why Africa is Poor. Why Africa is poor. And in that book, Dr. Mbetwa wrote this, quote, Socialism is not adept at finding solutions to serious problems. Its emphasis on collective responsibility over and above individual responsibility rolls over lingering individual capacity to configure self-extricating measures out of crises. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that socialism inhibits our, what, what each of us has as, as, as innate Character or property to try to help Ourselves To try to help ourselves, self-extricating To get ourselves out of our own Mess, to, or, or, or as the Old uh, saying would go, to pull Ourselves up by our own bootstraps and If there's anyone who knows About that principle, it's people who Live in Texas <laughs> Dr. will Goes on to say In the long term, socialism Robs individuals of the opportunity to acquire skills for personal emancipation. Let me pause there again. Personal emancipation, this is why I'm such a fan of Booker T. Washington. If you have never read his book, Up From Slavery, I strongly encourage you to read it, to add that book to your library. There are many more uh, that I could recommend, but Booker T. Washington's uh, autobiography, Up From Slavery, is one of the most amazing testimonies of personal emancipation And perseverance that you will ever read that you will ever read but as dr. Mbetwa says here socialism robs individuals of the opportunity to acquire skills for personal emancipation this is what critical race theory does especially as it relates to black people it reinforces the idea that all black people are victims you listen to Critical race theorists like Ibrahim makes Kendi, and it's a wonder virginalized black people can roll out of bed in the morning without the help from the government. I can't even get out of bed, I'm such a victim. Closing out this quote by Dr. Mbetwa, he says, Socialism struggles when it attempts to function as a propeller of wealth. Now, if you want to find a contradiction within a word, there it is. See, socialists, and when I say socialists, I really mean Marxists, they will try to promote the idea that socialism is the pathway to material success and wealth. But here's the thing. Have you ever thought about this? You need capitalism to have socialism. I'm gonna let that marinate for a second. Here's what I mean by that. If you don't have capitalism, where are you gonna get the stuff that you're gonna steal to give to everybody else under socialism? Where are you gonna get it? Socialism struggles when it attempts to function as a propeller of wealth. I'm closing out part one with this in his book titled Socialism, subtitled The Nation of Fatherless Children. Socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children, David Goldstein and Martha Moore Avery make an important distinction between the Christian worldview and the Marxist worldview, the socio-Marxist worldview. Listen closely to this, and I'll close part one with this. Again, from the book Socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children. Christianity connotes the individual relationship and moral responsibility of man to his creator. That's so important. I'm going to repeat that Christianity connotes the individual relationship and moral responsibility of man to his creator, the recognition of God's revelation to man in the person of Jesus Christ, which finds its material embodiment in the Christian church. Socialism and atheism deny the existence of God and his revelation. And let me pause there. This is what you have to understand again, going back to Karl Marx, that Marx was an atheist. Marx was an atheist. He was a racist. He hated every ethnicity on the face of the earth, including his own. Marx was a German-Argentine Jew who hated Jews. Socialism and atheism deny the existence of God and his revelation and so consequently deny the moral responsibility of man to him. That is the moral responsibility of man to God. Socialism denies that. Socialism declares his church to be the result of economic conditions and that its present form will be annihilated with the introduction of the cooperative commonwealth. Now cooperative commonwealth, that's more Marxist code. That's just code for Marxism. That's more Marxist vernacular without using the word Marxism. It denies the moral responsibility of the individual, declaring that, quote, the social body, unquote, will become morally morally responsible once it has perfected its form. Let me repeat that. Socialism denies the moral responsibility of the individual, declaring that the social body will become morally responsible once it has perfected its form. That's humanism. That's what you're seeing right now in the climate change movement. It's humanism. Climate change is Gaia worship. It's say, it's, the whole climate change movement is exactly what I read here. It is an effort that's rooted in the cooperative Commonwealth coming together as we as human beings continue to perfect our form we can take it upon ourselves to save the earth I, by the way I'll, again not to offend anybody but I'll die on that hill I'll die on that climate change hill you want to argue come talk to me about climate change I will die on that hill Do we not believe that God is sovereign over his creation? See, this is is what Goldstein and Avi are arguing. Of course, as Christians, and you carry about a biblical worldview, you know not to go around maliciously trashing the earth. You know that. But cow farts? You mean to tell me, how many farmers do we have in here? How many cattle ranchers do we have in here? That's not a joke. That's a serious uh, United Nations climate change proposition. Cow forest. The Netherlands right now is taxing. I am not lying. You can research this for yourself. The, the Netherlands right now are looking at they're considering enacting a cow fart tax to save the planet. Now, cows have existed since before the ark. before the ark, because they were on the ark. So they had to exist before the ark. But this is another example. You have to exegete the culture. If you doubt that God is in sovereign control over this planet? Read the last four chapters of Job. Then you come talk to me. Closing out this quote from Socialism, the Nation of Fatherless Children. But whether anything is done or nothing is done, little that is of any real or lasting value can be done until men and women fairly face the fact that the terrible condition of our poor is due, as are so many other ills. Again, this is what the Marxists are arguing. The Marxists are arguing that the terrible condition of our poor, this is what Black Lives Matter argued. They want to help the poor. But they ended up helping themselves. The Marxists will say that the terrible condition of our poor is due, as are so many other ills, to the two curses of our country and time. These two curses are capitalism and Christianity." Unquote. Again, that's from Socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children by David Goldstein and Martha Moore Avery. So with that, I'm going to wrap up part one. I believe we're going to have a little bit of a break. Eric, how long? you going to come up? I've got a little bit of a break, and then I'm going to come back, and in part two, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you five reasons why critical race theory is unbiblical. So I will see you all after the break. Thank you very much.